Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Sorry if I sound a little bit different today. I'm overcoming a cold right now, but hopefully it shouldn't interfere too much with things. Sorry about that. Last episode, we covered the reign of Ashantahene Opokoware, the king who oversaw the Ashanti kingdom's evolution from a rising power into the regional hegemon of Ghana. During his reign, the Ashanti conquered the Bonomen, Achem, Dagbon, Awin, and Wasa people more than doubling its territory. However, on today's episode, tensions between the recently appointed governors of these new territories and the Ashanti central government will boil over into a devastating conflict that will shape the future of the Ashanti state. Season 3, Episode 7, Kusi Obodom, the Enlightened King of Ashanti. Of unknown causes, sometime around 1750, Apokuare, the King of Ashanti for almost three decades, passed away. And, much like what happened when his predecessor died, the empire almost immediately descended into chaos with the news of his passing. You see, Opokuware's reign and the three decades of successful conquest that accompanied it had turned the Ashanti Empire into, essentially, an empire of Jenga blocks. It had been built incredibly fast and impressively, but it lay on a flimsy and fragile foundation. In the empire's far north, the old king of the Dagbon Empire was nominally an Ashanti subject, but still essentially ruled the land as his own kingdom. In the south, however, while sometimes local vassal kings were allowed to maintain their titles and social prestige, they had no true power besides the respect of their former constituents. In the south, true power resided in the Amanhene, governors appointed by the Ashantahene. The Amanhene proved quite successful in ensuring stability in the newly incorporated provinces, to the point that Apokuwari even appointed new Amanhenes to administrate provinces that had already been under the Ashanti imperial fold since before his reign, with basically every province in the empire receiving its own governor. However, these Amanhene also essentially acted as kings in their own right, collecting taxes, creating laws, and raising armies. The Amanhene and vassal kings were held together by the presence of the central Ashanti government, based in Kumasi. And, of course, holding that central government together was the keystone of the country, the Ashantahene himself. It was he who appointed many of the ministers, and he who possessed veto power over any of the final decisions made by the Ashanti state. So, while the Ashanti state was incredibly powerful at this time, as shown by the kingdom's rapid conquest of basically all of its neighbors, its stability rested on a very fragile foundation, the life of a single human being. Even before his death, though, Cracks were already beginning to show in Apokuare's empire. Apparently, right before his death, the Ashantahene was already well aware of the precarious state of his kingdom. In 1746, he initiated an ambitious reform project. While the exact policies in this reform are unknown, as it was never truly implemented, the most common speculation I've seen among historians seems to be that the package most likely sought to limit the governor's right to raise militias or collect taxes, or perhaps even both. So, to implement these reforms... Apokoware created yet another bureaucratic position. This position, known as the Insafohane, was essentially today what we'd call a federal bureaucrat, and they handled all sorts of things. Based out of Kumasi, the Insafohane's job was to make sure that the powers of the Amanhane were limited, ensure that the proper amount of tax revenue was raised for the central government, and ensure that local militias weren't exceeding their set limits. However, rather than centralizing power, the creation of the Insafohane kind of did the exact opposite of what Osetutu intended. See, the creation of the Insafohene didn't exactly limit the power of the Amanhenes as much as it divided the power in the provinces between themselves and these new bureaucrats. So, if anything, the creation of the Insafohene essentially doubled the number of people 
who could become potential threats to the Ashantihana's power. Not to mention, the creation of these meddling bureaucrats, whose job was to basically constantly hover over the shoulder of the Amanhanes, didn't really go over too well with these governors. Many became openly resentful at these bureaucrats' presence, in fact, to the point that they would actively disobey orders, hoard tax revenue, or otherwise find little ways to undermine the Ashantihane's authority. So, since Apokoware's goal with the creation of the Ansafohane was to re-centralize authority and bring the Amanhane under his control, I think we can call the creation of the Ansafohane a failure. With the policy's failure, Apokoware went into damage control, and tried to reverse the reform, returning a great deal of autonomy to the Amanhanes. However, all that returning power to the Amanhanes really did in the short term was immediately undermine Apokoware's authority among the recently empowered bureaucrats. Apokuware was basically stuck between a rock and a hard place. Empower the Ensafohene, earn the ire of the Amanhene. Empower the Amanhene, earn the ire of the Ensafohene. And the Ashantahene's trapeze act of Loki trying to undermine both in order to restore his own power was only making things worse. In 1748, this precarious attempt to balance power came to a head. A group of bureaucrats, enraged by Apokuware's attempts to restore power to the Amanhene's, launched a coup d'etat at the royal palace in Kumasi. They sought to capture the Ashantihane and force him to rescind his restoration of autonomy. However, Apokuare apparently saw the coup coming ahead of time, and slipped away to the neighboring city of Juaben in the middle of the night. There, he sought the protection of the local king, which was granted to him. With the Ashantihane no longer in Kumasi, the empire was now at a political standstill. Neither faction was willing to make a second move in response to the palace coup. The army, unsure of which side to support, just kind of awkwardly stood around, paralyzed. That year, a Dutch ambassador arrived in Joaben, proposing that the Ashanti and the Dutch cooperate in a war against the Ga people around Accra. Opokuare, of course, declined. The Ashanti were obviously in no state to pursue conquests or deal with foreign policy. After two years of political crisis, in 1750, Opokuare passed away, though the circumstances of his death are unclear. While we have to assume he died naturally, his relatively young age at the time of his death, as he was only about 50, as well as the political status quo at the time make it hard for me to rule out entirely the potential of foul play. Of course, we can assume that each faction was happy to blame the other for the king's death. Regardless of how he actually died, the result of Opokoware's death was the same. The brewing instability throughout the realm escalated into an intense boil. With the last thing resembling a united vestige of the empire gone, there would be a civil war. Now, unlike Osetutu, Opokuware had explicitly appointed a successor before his death. A man known to us as Dako, likely Opokuware's maternal nephew, was set from the beginning to be the next Ashantahene. However, the intense instability at the end of Opokuware's rule ensured that such a smooth transition was an impossibility. Many of the Amanhenes feared that Dako, surrounded by Ensafohene and Kumasi, would prove to act essentially as a mouthpiece for bureaucratic interests. In their view, Dako would push for centralization reform that would extend the power of the Ensafohenes at the Amanhene's expense. And they had good reasons to fear that, too. After Apokuare's death, Dako went back to Kumasi to be installed. Clearly some kind of deal had been struck between Dako and the Ensafohenes that they allowed this to happen. The Amanhenes rallied around another member of the Oyoko family, a man named Kusi Obodom. 
a fairly obscure figure until now. Kusi Obodom's connection to the previous Ashanti Hennes is not well documented. Obodom himself would claim to be the matrilineal nephew of one of the prospective heirs that had participated in the earlier power struggle after Ose Tutu's death, but the evidence to support this claim is pretty thin. That is to say, all we have to go off of is Obodom's word, and he has plenty of incentive to claim to be the nephew of Ose Tutu's proper heir, regardless of the truth of the matter. His legitimacy, in the end, wasn't really that important. The Amanhene rallied around Obodom not because of his superior royal pedigree, but because he was a mild-mannered, conservative figure. He was fairly elderly, and mostly blind. If in power, he wouldn't try to do anything crazy like enact centralization reforms. No, he'd be happy to kick back, fully return powers to the Amanhene, and just let the proverbial boat sail itself. Dako, on the other hand, had the advantage of being the chosen pick of Opokuare. Because of this, Dako received the support of a significant proportion of the army, as well as some of the Amanhene close to the capital. The king of Juaben, who had protected Opokuare from the Ansafohene's coup, sided with Dako. It didn't hurt that the king of Juaben was also one of the members of the Kotoko council. This council, like the Ansafohene, had much to gain from centralization. So, despite their differences, the king of Juaben aligned himself with the same person as the Ansafohenes. After all, less power in the hands of the regional governors meant more power in the hands of the central government, including both the bureaucrats and the Kotoko council. While most of the details have been lost, we do know that the ensuing civil war took a heavy toll on the Ashanti Empire. Lasting at least seven years, the war exhausted Ashanti manpower and weaponry. Additionally, the Amanhene, distracted by the civil war, turned their attention away from the provinces they governed. Throughout the civil war, the recently conquered regions in the south gradually slipped further and further away from Ashanti influence. The once defeated and subjugated kings in Chuifel, Achem, and Wasa reasserted themselves. By 1754, the entirety of the south was de facto independent of Ashanti control. And, preoccupied with their war in the north, the Amanhene couldn't do anything about it. To make matters worse, as the states slipped out of Ashanti influence, they found themselves in need of a new protector in case the Ashanti ever tried to re-establish control in the south, and they found a willing ally in the form of the Fonti. The Fonti have been absent from our narrative for quite a while now, so what have they been up to for the last while? Well, the answer is preparing for war. For the last several decades, the Fonti had watched as the Ashanti rose from a small collection of Denshira vassals into an unstoppable juggernaut that had conquered anyone who stood in their way. And, before his reign became consumed by his efforts to pass provincial reforms, it was an open secret that Apokuwari had been planning some kind of attack on the Fonti. So clearly, the Fonti were right to be concerned that they might be the next entry on the Ashanti's territorial shopping list. So, the Fonti turned to the same solution that had saved them from Denshira domination nearly a century earlier. Safety in numbers. Rather than allowing the Ashanti to simply reconquer their southern subjects, and once again put the Fonti in the crosshairs of conquest, the king of Montcassem, the de facto leader of the Fonti confederacy, reached out to each of the new breakaway kingdoms with a simple offer. Join us, and we'll help you if the Ashanti ever come knocking again. Of course, each of these kingdoms accepted this simple proposition, entering into a grand alliance against Ashanti expansion. And, spoiler alert, 
The formation of this grand alliance will essentially mark the beginning of a grand rivalry between the Ashanti and Fonti that will define the rest of this season. While Ashanti influence waned in the south, the conflict between Obodom and Dako's factions continued to rage on. However, after years of fighting, it became clear that Obodom had gained the upper hand. By 1756, the Ashanti had been mostly pacified, and in 1757, Kusi Obodom was the victor. He was installed as the new Ashanti Hene in Kumasi. Dako's fate after the war is unknown. The most likely answer is that he was either killed in battle, fled the country, or was executed. So, with his main rival defeated, Obodom was now established as the sole ruler of Ashanti, right? Well, not really. Remember, Obodom had sided with the faction in the Civil War that opposed the centralization of the Ashantahene's authority. So yes, Obodom was now king, but largely in name only. Almost immediately after the war's conclusion, many of Apokoware's policies that limited the power of the Amanhene fell out of practice. Remember how the Amanhene had their rights to raise militias severely limited? Yeah, right. Large regional militias popped up all over the country. Those Kumasi bureaucrats that were supposed to keep the Amanhene in check? Well, they were either fired outright or had their power dramatically reduced in practice. Previously, while the Ashantahene and his royal bureaucrats in Kumasi enjoyed near-complete control over military and economic policy, these domains were now dominated by the influence of the Amanhenes. Given the violent way in which he came to power, you might expect that Kusi Obodom's rule might have been one of intense repression and brutality. But this isn't what happened. Rather than continuing the violence of the previous years, Obodom actually proved to be a remarkably humanitarian ruler. Though he possessed much less power than his predecessors, the things he did do with his power seemed to be, generally, pretty nice. And the best example of this is Obodom's reforms that he sought to implement on the Ashanti criminal justice system. So, what did the Ashanti criminal justice system look like before Obodom's reforms? Well, like pretty much all societies at the time, the Ashanti legal system seems incredibly draconian and unfair from our modern perspective. Concepts like trial by jury, protection from self-incrimination, and the guarantee of a legal defender were non-existent. Rather, trials were all conducted as judge trials, with the local Amanhene acting as judge. And before the trial, people were jailed for sometimes significant periods of time to ensure that they showed up to their day in court. If a party in the trial didn't like the Amanhene's ruling, they could appeal it and have the case brought to the Ashantahene himself. But, once the Ashantahene provided his ruling, it was a final, unrepealable verdict. So, among the activities that were considered criminal in the Ashanti Empire, there are some obvious candidates. These include murder, various types of sexual misconduct, theft, assault, perjury, but also some activities that you might not expect or might confuse you a little bit. Suicide was illegal and punished harshly. Of course, punishing someone who has committed suicide is difficult, given that they're, you know, dead. But that didn't stop the Ashanti legal system. The corpse of the person who committed suicide would be exhumed and then decapitated, an incredible sign of dishonor, and their remaining property would be seized by the state. This meant that if a person committed suicide, all of their assets could not be passed on to their relatives. Incest was also strictly illegal, and included not only blood relatives, but also family members related only through marriage. Strangely, Ashanti law references that it is illegal to have sex with your sister's husband, 
but also mentions that it is illegal to have sex with your sister's wife. So, did the Ashanti Empire have gay marriage in the 18th century? Strangely enough, the answer isn't exactly yes or no, but is closer to yes than you might expect. If you'd like to learn more about the complicated state of homosexuality in the Ashanti Empire, you should check out the latest premium episode on our Patreon. Me and my editor also put in a ton of work into making these episodes, about 30 hours each week, and we rely on your support to keep up the effort. So, not only do you get to help keep the show running by supporting us, but you also gain access to dozens of premium episodes on interesting topics like this one. So, if this sounds nice to you, help us out at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. And to those of you already supporting the show, thank you. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Anyways, the Ashanti's legal stance on adultery was also complicated. Whether you were married or unmarried, having an affair with another married person was illegal, as the Ashanti considered adultery to be a form of theft. The Ashanti viewed it as stealing someone else's spouse, terminology that people still often use to describe adultery to this day. However, if a married person had an affair with an unmarried person, they hadn't technically stolen anyone from anyone. So only the unmarried person who had the affair could be punished, which seems kind of unfair. You could cheat on your wife with a single woman, and she would be the only one held liable. In terms of the rights of speech, criticism of the individual current Ashantihene himself was actually legal and widely accepted, but insulting the institution of the Golden Stool was absolutely not. Additionally, certain phrases were legally banned in Ashanti society, as they were viewed as simply too taboo to utter out loud. These phrases almost exclusively revolved around the insult of somebody's ancestors. The Akan religion was basically defined by the paramount worship of ancestors, so cursing somebody else's ancestors was viewed as incredibly sacrilegious. So, cracking a Yomama joke in 18th century Kumasi could land you in some serious legal trouble. The most taboo insult among the Ashanti, the use of which was strictly illegal, roughly translated to calling someone child of an idiot. So, how would people be punished for these crimes? Well, for pretty much all of these crimes, the punishment was incredibly serious. Death, mutilation, and exile were the most common forms of justice, which, yeah, is pretty harsh. In today's society, the death penalty is incredibly rare. Ghana hasn't executed someone in almost 30 years, for example. And it's worth mentioning that the execution of criminals in the Ashanti Empire often took an overtly religious tone. Rather than solemnly having their heads lobbed off, executions among the Ashanti were public spectacles. Criminals slated for execution were usually offered as sacrifices to the spirits of the ancestors. However, among those criminals who did receive the death penalty, not all were viewed with the same contempt. Relatively petty criminals were executed by strangulation while more heinous and serious crimes were met with decapitation, considered the most dishonorable way to die by Ashanti society. However, remember that this summary describes the Ashanti legal system before the immense changes that happened under the rule of Kusi Obadom. 
For starters, many crimes saw their punishments dramatically reduced. The punishment for insulting someone's ancestors was toned down significantly, from mutilation or even death, depending on severity of the insult, to the mere payment of a fine and a somewhat humiliating public apology. Additionally, for many other offenses, the death sentence was replaced with jail time or the payment of a fine, including theft, adultery, and incest. The death penalty did continue to be used for many of the most serious crimes, like murder, rape, and similarly intense offenses, but its use had been significantly diminished and strangulation became much more common as a means of execution. Obodom also reformed the trial system. Specifically, he instituted a reform to the waiting period before a trial. However, Obodom changed the system so that people could only be held for a set amount of time, with one day being the standard and two days being needed in cases where there was simply not enough time to deliberate. If a case still warranted even more time beyond two days before the trial, then the accused person in question would be released into a form of basically house arrest until a verdict was reached, a significant expansion to the rights of the accused in court. Additionally, of course, it's worth mentioning that there was another way that loss would be enforced among the Ashanti outside of the government itself. See, if you felt you had been wronged and that the state hadn't provided you justice, many people would turn to their family. And if you belonged to one of the extended families that were the large Akan tribes, you could always rely on that tribe to dish out justice for you. But, for reasons that should be obvious, this kind of vigilante justice came with its fair share of problems. For one, there's nothing even resembling a trial to determine guilt. So it's easy for innocent people to often end up becoming punished for actions they didn't do. Most crucially, though, interfamilial violence has a tendency to escalate if left unchecked. Say a member of one family is accused of a serious crime by another, so they go out and kill that person. So the other family strikes back, killing a member of the other family. This can easily escalate into an ongoing cycle of violence that can sometimes take generations and countless bodies to resolve. Kusi Obodom was well aware of the potential dangers of tribal violence. During the Civil War, as government institutions became less reliable, we can assume that the tribe became the primary means of dispensing justice among the ordinary population, meaning that familial disputes were becoming an increasingly common occurrence. And if something wasn't done to break these cycles of violence, things could easily continue to escalate and even get out of hand. So, Obodom set out a series of ambitious legal reforms, specifically targeted at ending intertribal violence. These new reforms made it so that offenses taken against other tribal families could result in incredibly harsher punishments in court. While murder of someone within your own tribe or someone without a tribe could land you the death penalty, murdering someone in another tribe could land your entire immediate family the death penalty. While being caught stealing would normally land you jail time, theft against a member of another tribe meant death. These new laws not only intended to break the cycle of intertribal violence by preventing intertribal crimes, but they also sought to restore the tribe's faith in the government's ability to punish offenses properly, so they wouldn't have to take justice into their own hands in the future. And the system seems to have worked. After Obodom's reforms, intertribal violence in the Ashanti lands declined immensely. Interestingly, these extra-rigid protections provided to tribe members applied not only to free people, but also to slaves. If a slave happened to be a member of an Akan tribal family, Offenses against them were taken seriously. The Ashanti did possess laws against excessive abuse or maltreatment of slaves, but these laws were rarely enforced. However, if the wrong slave belonged to an Akan tribe, 
all of a sudden the chances of them receiving justice for these abuses was much higher. Essentially, with the passage of these laws, Ashanti social hierarchy went from a two-tiered system of free and slave to a three-tiered system of free people, slaves with a tribal affiliation, who could expect some degree of legal rights and privileges, and states without a tribal affiliation, who were treated like, well, slaves. This two-tier system of slavery also meant that non-Akan slaves, or Akan who didn't belong to a tribe, were in higher demand, as they could be used and abused in any manner without any serious threat of repercussion. And, as we'll see throughout the rest of this podcast, the increased demand for non-tribal slaves provoked by Obodom's tribal laws will have an immense impact on the rest of Ashanti history. So, here we are. After a long period of civil strife and warfare, things seem to be calming down. Obodom's reforms have vastly improved the liberty, rights, and welfare of many of the Ashanti people, and significantly reduced the likelihood of intertribal feuds. Things seem to be returning to relative normal, right? Well, wrong. You see, this whole time, as we've been covering the Ashanti Civil War, another crisis has been brewing to the Empire's east. The Ashanti's oldest and strongest ally, the Kingdom of Aquamu, has completely collapsed in the face of an unprecedented foreign invasion. What was responsible for the sudden defeat of the century-old Aquamu Empire? A rising power to the east, which will prove to be the greatest threat that the Ashanti have encountered since the Denshira. Join us next episode as we learn about the crisis transpiring in the East and meet the Ashanti's newest and most impressive rival yet, the rising kingdom of Daume. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com by giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagba Mie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sean Burke, Sarah Mpenza, and Tobias Tungland, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.